VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yo, technology, what is it all about? We do know that there, there has been a rise of completely fake news outlets spreading viral content that's completely untrue, and I do think that's a problem. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Danny in the Valley, Season 2. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you managed to have some time to disconnect and take part in some festivities over uh, the end of the year, New Year. I did, but I was also very busy going out and meeting lots of folks, lining up interviews. We've got a lot of really great stuff, really good guests, top guests for this uh, upcoming season, which is all very exciting. Starting with this week's guest, Jimmy Wales. Yes, the Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, which is now, I believe, the fifth most popular website on the planet. It's in a bunch of languages. It's got something like 45 million articles, and it's a charity. So we're going to talk about that and Jimmy's next trick, which is trying to do the same thing to the news industry with a thing called Wiki Tribune. But before we get to that, I want to just uh, recount a quick story because I thought it was really funny. I was interviewing a venture capitalist recently, and we had a kind of a long meandering conversation about lots of different stuff. And I just met the guy, and you know, it was, but it was a good conversation. And when we were done, I was getting my stuff, I was getting ready to leave, and I put my hand out to shake his hand, and he hugged me. Like, a, and this was like a real hug. This wasn't like one of those one-armed kind of half-hearted type things. Like this was an embrace and he held me and it was weird. It just was one of those moments where you're like, well, you're really not in the UK anymore. But it made me think, I wonder if anybody else has had an experience like that. So please email me, let me know. And I'll uh, read a couple out if they are, you know, safe for this family program. So I'm on danny.fordson at sunday-times.co.uk or on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Slide into the DMs and uh, tell me your story. But I digress. Let's get to this week's guest, the first guest of season two, which of course is Jimmy Wales. And we were supposed to do this face-to-face, but both in San Francisco and then potentially in London, but it never quite worked out. So we did it over the phone, but I think you'll really enjoy the conversation because what he is trying to do is basically do to news what he's already done to the encyclopedia, crowdsource it. And just a quick note before we get started, two things happened since we recorded this interview, which was last week. One, cryptocurrencies crashed, which we talk about. And also Facebook announced a big change to how it treats news, basically deprioritizing it entirely in lieu of personal posts from family and friends. So we talk about both of those subjects, but both of those 
events happened after we spoke, so it's actually quite apropos we discussed it. I just wanted to kind of give you a heads up on that. Anyhow, on to Jimmy. I've been concerned about the state of journalism as an industry for quite some time, as I think most of us have been. I think it's become harder and harder for serious news outlets to to thrive. And we've seen the rise of a lot of very low quality media. And I think there's something really interesting that we learn from the world of Wikipedia, which is that community members can come together and do great productive work. And I see lots of ways for people to participate in the news process in a way that I didn't see anybody else really attempting. And so to me, it just seems like an interesting thing to do, because I think if we can reduce the overall cost of doing journalism, then more of the money that we do get from the readers can go to hiring journalists. The concept of Wiki Tribune is to bring together a wiki community and paid professional journalists to work together as equals to create something new in the space of journalism. Obviously, the wiki approach is, you know, it's all volunteer. And I know this is a bit of a hybrid. But is this about trying to find another way beyond the advertising driven model that seems to dominate online? Yeah, and I think that the advertising only model has been very destructive to journalism. I mean, it really puts all the wrong kinds of pressures on news outlets for clickbait headlines, cheaply produced, lightweight content. And I'm actually really happy to see the rise of reader revenue has has really improved in the last couple of years. And famously, the New York Times, for example, their subscriptions went from around 1 million to 1.8 million in about 12 months time. That feels really important to me in terms of restoring a little bit of balance that the advertising-only model doesn't really provide for. Right. The Wiki Tribune idea, I mean, it sounds a bit like blogging with a bit of professional curation. Well, no, not really, because blogging is really opinion-based. I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. I once accidentally made someone very angry when I called blogs opinion because they thought I meant mere opinion and sort of putting <laughs> right, them down. Right, but right. no, it, I don't mean mere opinion. I mean, but it's opinion. And it's really about one person's view of the world and, and trying to put themselves out there and so forth. Whereas what I'm talking about is collaboratively produced. It's really not about producing opinion pieces. It's about fact-checking. It's about very straight, neutral journalism. So very different from blogging in that sense. And just taking a step back, you talked about, you know, kind of the destructive nature of the current ad-only models. Is this part of a broader worry about just the state of the internet and where it is in 2018? Yeah, but I I wouldn't restrict it to just the internet. I I would say the state of the media more broadly. I'm among the many, many people who are concerned about the rise of fake news. Unfortunately, the, the president has really damaged any coherent use of that term because he splatters it around so much. But still, we do know that there there has been a rise of completely fake news outlets spreading viral content that's completely untrue. And I do think that's a problem. Just diving into the Wiki Tribune model, how, do, how does it actually work? Say story, I don't know, North Korea. How does Wiki Tribune cover that? North Korea is, a, is an interesting example because you know, we have a very small editorial team. I think we've got 13 journalists at the moment. And obviously, there are large news organizations who can have people on the ground, not necessarily in North Korea, but in South Korea and so on. 
So on a story like that, you know, the community can do a lot of fact checking. Uh, we can do broad overview reporting, but it doesn't feel like that's going to be an area where we will have a particular strength. Where we're going to have a particular strength, I hope, in the future is really around local journalism, around energizing communities and pairing them up with journalists to do interesting things there. And have you talked to people like Facebook? I know they they at least publicly have talked a lot about, even though they have gone some way to hollowing out local journalism, they're talking a, a good game about trying to you know support it, bring it back, fund it somehow. I think it's important. I'm not really sure what Facebook has in mind. I talk more to Google, and obviously they have a similar but different set of interests here. I think it's important for the internet giants to be concerned about the issue because ultimately, let's say for Facebook, it's a quality of experience issue for them. If I get the feeling that when I go on Facebook, I'm inundated with nonsense, clickbait headlines and things like that, I'm not really getting the kind of content and information that I want, then of course I'll stop turning to Facebook as a as a source for news content. That's something they do have to care about. You know, I don't think that they are really the full solution. I mean, they're part of the ecosystem, of course, and I'm happy to see that they're taking an interest in the issue. But, you know, of course, one of the big problems that we have is that the advertising model is really dominated by Google and Facebook, and the lion's share of ad revenues flow to them, which means that for other outlets, they need to compete on a really on a page view basis. And it's, you know, you're not going to compete with Facebook on a page view basis. That's a part of the problem that's super interesting, but it's there's nothing simple that I think Facebook can do about that. People were angry at them about that, but I, you know, I'm not. I just think, you know, they've built a really popular service and it's run by advertising and no surprise, they're getting a lot of ad revenue. And so just going back to the this idea of covering local news, so you would have contributors saying, oh, you know, I don't know, Councilman X is fiddling his expenses. You guys should really look into this. And then do they do on-the-ground reporting, or is that when you send out a Wicked Tribune journalist to actually... I think it can be a bit of both. So I, I always like to give a particular example, which predates Wiki Tribune, but it's a, so it's a hypothetical example. But when we look at the Grenfell Tower fire, and if you go and you look at the Wikipedia entry on the Grenfell Tower fire, it's really fantastic. It's really long. The last time I looked at it, it had over 300 references it's incredibly detailed, and I think most people would, would say, right, if someone just woke up from a coma and said, oh dear, I heard about this terrible fire, what happened? We all might say, oh, well, here's the Wikipedia entry, right? It gives you the full orientation. This is what happened. This is what's all been said about it, and so on. So let's go back and look at that entry on the day that the fire happened. It, of course, it got started quite quickly at, at Wikipedia, and what you might see in a situation like that is... The Wikipedians are working hard to search around, gather all kinds of different news sources and background information, the history of the building and all of that. One of the questions that came up very early on was the, the cladding on the outside of the building. Was that cladding legal or illegal in the UK? And there were kind of conflicting reports. Some people thought, oh no, it's been banned in the US, but it's still legal in the UK. Someone said, no, no, it's illegal in the UK. And obviously that's an important question because it goes right to the heart of who's to blame here. Is it a contractor that fraudulently put up illegal materials or was it bad regulation that allowed it to be put up? You know, what, what's going on here? And so I can easily see that the community might be very busily, you know, updating the story with all the information they're gathering from all over, but they might say, hey, actually, we need to get 
a fire cladding expert on the phone. And that's where a journalist could jump in and say, you're right. Yeah, we're on that. We, we're going to talk to three lawyers. Uh, we're going to talk to, you know, we're going to, we're going to do some interviews and get that information back to you. And so it's that kind of working together where some people have the resources to drop everything and work all day on a story and other people pitch in when and as they can. So that's how I envision at least one type of story working. And so you have 13 journalists. How, how is this funded? So I did a, uh, a crowdfunding campaign back in April, asking people to sign up to contribute. We were really looking for people to do monthly contributions, and lots of people did. And so we have a steady stream of revenue from that. To help fund the creation of the tech platform, we got a grant from Google from their digital news initiative. That's one of the things Google is doing to show their interest in, in the news space. But it's primarily the, the, the primary business model going forward is contributions from the readers. Donations. Yeah. And how is that going so far? Because you've been kind of, you actually launched properly and I think it was October, is that right? Yeah, that's right, in, in October. It's going well. I mean, we're small and we've still got a long way to go on the software platform. It's still very much in flux as we, you know, continue to tweak and improve and get things to where I want them to be. But it, it's, it's functional now. It's just a little confusing on the back end. So we're working on that. And uh, yeah, we're publishing stories and community members are chipping in. Sometimes they write stories. Sometimes they're just making comments, editing. Now we're just really in the process of beginning to build a community and to get out there. How does the uh, kind of the funding break down? I think I saw some reference to X number of people giving 15 quid a month allows you to hire one journalist or something like that. Yeah, I don't know those numbers off the top of my head, but if you saw it on the site, that probably came from somewhere sensible. Yeah, you know, but that's the basic concept, is to say, look, the more people who subscribe, then the more journalists we can hire, and obviously tech people and so on as well. Is that the direction of travel, you think? Because, I mean, I think that's what's one of the interesting things around media today is, you know, does this have to effectively become a charity? Like, you know, you have The Guardian basically asking for donations on its site, you know, and giving away their content for free, but saying, you know, please give us money, which is kind of an interesting, or it's a very different business model. It's more like a charity. I wouldn't use the word charity. I don't think it has to be a charity, but it is an interesting model to say we have no advertising and no paywall. Uh, and so, as I've joked, uh, a, a terrible business model, but that's how I've built my career so far. Um, <laughs> but... So here's the way I think about that. So for The Guardian, for example, the papers that have done the best out of true paywalls have been the financial newspapers. The reason for that is if I'm buying a financial paper online or, or, you know, a subscription, it's an investment. I want access to that information. I need it for my business, for my career. And I actually don't mind if other people don't have that information. In fact, I'm probably slightly better off if they don't, that if I know the latest trends on steel sales in China and you don't, and we go into a business meeting, well, I've got some kind of an advantage if that's obviously relevant to our business meeting. And that's very different. You know, when The Guardian does a big expose based on Ed Snowden's leaked documents, I don't want to support The Guardian so that I get exclusive access to that information. I want to support The Guardian because I want them to tell everybody. And so a paywall, in a sense, doesn't work very well for that kind of public interest journalism. And yet people are happy to support it and they're happy to pay for it. You just have to ask them. And that seems a bit weird, but that's the way Wikipedia works. People think it should exist, so they pay for it. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot 
is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. That's a perfect segue, actually. Hey. <laughs> to Wikipedia. So could you just talk about, so you're, you live in London now, but you're obviously not from those shores. Could you just give us, give the quick kind of, uh, your quick biography and how you ended up getting into Wikipedia and kind of what your, how you started out? So I had been watching the growth of free software or open source software, as most people call it, and seeing programmers coming together to collaborate to build, you know, effectively all the really great software that runs the internet. So GNU Linux, Apache Perl, MySQL, PHP, all of these things are open source software written largely by volunteers, shared under a free license. And I thought, that's interesting. That's really working. And the free licensing model helps to eliminate certain kinds of incentive problems. Uh, and it's a functional thing. And that kind of collaboration could extend beyond just software into all kinds of cultural works. So that was when I originally had the concept of... And what, you know, and what were you doing at the time? License. Sorry. Oh, what was I doing at the time? I was a futures and options trader in Chicago. Okay. You were living in Chicago? Yeah. I'm from Alabama originally. The home of Roy Moore. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Sad to say. Sad to say. So you didn't study kind of coding or, or programming in, not, in not, university? Not as a field. Obviously, I, I am a programmer. I was a, a very quantitative finance person. So dealing with large data sets and uh, mathematical modeling and coding and things like that. So I did know how to program. I always say I'm a programmer, but not a very good one. Right, right. Obviously, the approach is very different. Uh, it's not your typical business approach. Did you grow up in kind of an anarchic household? No, uh, but a very come from a very entrepreneurial family. My my mother started a music school and a, a private school where I went to school, and then later started her own pharmacy and so forth. My uncle had a music store and then later a computer store, and that's where I first 
learned about computers. So I came from a, you know, an entrepreneurial family, I would say. Oh, wow. So do you play any instruments now? Not really. I, I did play piano as a kid, and I can still plonk out a little bit of something, but not, not nearly enough. So you're in Chicago and you're working as a trader. I imagine that wasn't the most fulfilling experience or you were just looking for something else? Oh, I, I loved it. I, I thought that was a really fun job. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I really liked it. It was uh, very intellectually challenging and stimulating and exciting. But I was even more excited by the internet. You know, the things that were coming. I had been doing things on the internet for, for some time, back in grad school and so forth. Even before the World Wide Web, we were using FTP and email and tools to transfer big data sets and do things like that. And so I, I was very... Did you go to grad school? I went to the University of Alabama and to Indiana University. And where, would you get an MBA or...? A master's in finance. And I was working on a PhD, but I never finished that. What was the PhD in? Finance. In an alternative universe, you could have launched a head fund and been a mega billionaire. <laughs> yeah, I think probably more likely I could have been a finance professor at some obscure university. <laughs> and so when you started thinking about all of this stuff, what year was it? I think I first got on the internet for the first time in like 1989. There wasn't an internet then, was there? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was mostly academic uh, FTP. There was no World Wide Web because the, the web hadn't been invented. But yeah, there was, there was all kinds of interesting stuff going on. Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web in 1989. So I didn't know So you were that. there right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and there was Usenet and all that stuff. So, you know, over a long period of time, basically. I, I think there are a few different kind of moments when I had an idea. But, you know, in general, I was thinking a lot about collaboration. I mean, I remember in grad school, even at Indiana University, I opened up uh, the Emacs editor, which is a code editor. And if you hit just the right set of keystrokes in Emacs, you get the Emacs Manifesto, which is a document written by Richard Stallman, who's really the founder of the free software movement, uh, with his sort of rantings about software and freedom and the whole concepts behind sharing economies and so on. And it's it's basically... I thought, well, this guy's a nut, but this is actually quite interesting. And I thought, well, (laughs) at least he can make a great editor. So, you know, I don't think this is going to catch on. But then I saw over time, like, okay, wow, like, actually, there's a huge amount of work going on. And I was really interested in, from my degree, I was studying finance and uh, game theory is a big part of that and incentives and things like that, thinking about what works in markets and doesn't and so on and so forth. And I started thinking a lot about the incentive structures for sharing and working together and things like that. So I I was very interested in that whole open source world and open source ideology. That's kind of where the the germ of the concept of Wikipedia came from. Was there a a kind of a moment where you're like, okay, I'm just going to do this? I mean, were you sitting at home staring at the Encyclopedia Britannica and saying, I need to disrupt that? (laughs) Uh, Not really. That's a very... (laughs) Silicon Valley way of speaking. I don't think we used to say disrupt in the same way. For me, the, the, when I had the idea for the predecessor, Newpedia, I mean, I had to build an encyclopedia, I thought, wow, like this is something that it just needs to exist. And I wasn't really thinking in a very business-like way. I was just thinking, this sounds like something that needs to be done. So just got started trying to do it. How do you start something, so a project that seems so unruly and so amorphous? Part of what was appealing about the project from the even pre-Newpedia, pre the first attempt, was the idea that, hey, it's not that amorphous. It's, it's actually fairly s- simple to understand. Like, 
We all know what an encyclopedia is. If you think about collaborating on writing an encyclopedia, that kind of seems obvious. You know, if I say encyclopedia article about the Eiffel Tower, then you have immediately pretty much the same idea as anyone else about what that should look like. It's going to have the history and who who the architect was and when it was built and why it was built. And there'll be a couple of pictures. You know, we, we kind of know what that's supposed to look like at the end of the day. That meant, okay, look, there, there's actually a goal that lots of people can immediately intuitively understand what our direction is, what we're trying to work on. And I think that makes a huge difference. I think if you started something like Wikipedia and I didn't say, yeah, this is an encyclopedia. If I just said, this is a bunch of empty web pages, let's see what we can write together. I think it would turn into complete nonsense. I think you have to have a a focus uh, that people can have a shared a shared vision of where you're trying to get. And then it just kind of took off. Yeah, yeah. So Newpedia was the predecessor. And that I didn't understand much about communities online. The concept of a wiki, meaning a website that anyone can edit, was unknown to me. So Newpedia was a very top-down, very structured thing, which really was a failure. It, it was very difficult for people to be involved. It was even though we had hundreds of people who were active on the mailing list and were really excited and interested in the vision of a free encyclopedia for everyone, we didn't know how to actually do it. How do we, what kind of software we using? Why did Newpedia fail? Newpedia failed because it was too hard for volunteers to actually get involved. There were too many steps. It was too much overhead. And basically, then a guy named Ward Cunningham had invented the concept of wiki back in 1995. Once we saw that and I said, oh, let's use that software. Let's have a very open, easy system, a wiki, for people to be able to contribute. Then there was open source wiki software packages out there. I just installed one and we started writing. And in two weeks, we had more work done than in nearly two years. You know, that was a huge moment to say, okay, wow, like by eliminating all this seven-stage review process to get anything published and so on, we actually really make it possible for people to do great work. So it was kind of a user, almost a user interface problem. Yeah, exactly. But also a social structure problem, I would say. I remember I was I was thinking of writing an entry myself. And at that time, Robert Merton. Well, had, do you remember the entry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Robert Merton, who had recently no, won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work on option pricing theory, which was my specialty when I was a PhD student. And I thought, oh, I've read all of his academic papers. I know this field very well. I haven't been in academia for a few years by this time because I've been a trader. But I thought I can write a short biography of him. And so when I started, though, I knew that they were going to take my first draft and send it out for review to the most prestigious finance professors they could find. And it was like super intimidating to say, wow, like it's really that's a lot of pressure. Whereas in the wiki world, you could just write. Robert Merton won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work in option pricing theory and put a link to a news story and bam, there you go, you've started. It's not a very good article, but it's easy to start. It's easy to participate. And then someone else can come along and say, oh, I know a little bit about that. And they can add something and a reference and so on and so forth. And so how long were you doing this as a side project, whether Newpedia or Wiki, before you quit your day job? I don't know. It's kind of complicated. <laughs> Several years. I've never been an employee of Wikipedia. It's always been my, my charity work. So You're the monarch. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but you, you've lived in the UK, so you know it's more like Queen Elizabeth the monarch, not Henry VIII. So yes. <laughs> I'm not really able to send people to the tower, sadly. <laughs> no. One of the things I think is interesting is this, I mean, 
you know, you have a master's in finance and you're doing options trading and obviously that can be very lucrative, but kind of choosing this and choosing this path kind of almost necessarily meant that you wouldn't have this great path to riches like so many other people in the tech world. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, everybody's always interested in that. I find it quite not so interesting, but yeah. <laughs> well, it's just interesting because it's, um, if you think about, you know, the kind of the richest people in the world and all these, increasingly they are coming from the tech world because it is so, if you have something that really takes off and a kernel of an idea can become a massive business very quickly. Was that just not ever a motivation for you? It wasn't a huge motivation, but I'm not against making money. It's actually really interesting. Early in my career with Wikipedia, I would have reporters sort of trying to bait me, sort of, they thought I was going to be some kind of crazy communist who thought it's wrong to make money, and I don't. So, and you know, my for-profit company, Wikia Fandom, it does very, very well, normally ranked in the top 20 of websites, and you know, I might make some money. Wikia what? com, which is being rebranded to Fandom. So it's basically a couple hundred thousand wiki communities about entertainment, gaming, movies, TV, that sort of thing. And that's for-profit? Yeah. And how does that make money? Advertising. User-generated content oh. and advertising. And the Wiki Tribune is also for-profit? Yeah. Going back to the kind of how that is structured, at the moment it relies on people donating. How do you create a sustainable business off of that? Or is that the plan? Well, it's untested. But if we look at the revenue of Wikipedia, it's quite large. You know, I don't think it's necessarily going to be super profitable. But the idea that I believe people are willing to pay, I think people can understand the message of we don't have a paywall because what you're paying for is for us to tell everyone we could have a paywall, but I think we'd be of less value to you in that in that context. Also, with Wiki Tribune, we, we've launched without advertising and I don't want to have advertising, but we're not making any permanent sort of hard-coded promise that we'll never have any advertising. I think we have to be flexible and see, okay, like I've got this crazy idea that people will just think this is worth supporting and they'll just pay and we can hire journalists. If that turns out not to be true, although so far it seems to be working, then we'll have to examine what are some other options. Optimistic take on the crowd or the masses. Yeah, well, I, I always say I'm a pathological optimist. So I think everything's <laughs> going to be fine. And so I actually always try to make sure I've got a few pessimists around me to kind of balance things out. But uh, people are good. They'll chip in. So you don't despair of the state of the internet, how it's kind of effectively become dominated by just a few very big platforms? I don't. I mean, it's still a very open web. I, there are concerns I have. So despite my pathological optimism, I do think there are things we need to keep an eye on. You know, a lot of Potential regulation is typically well-meaning, but misguided and, and clumsy, and that won't help the problem. You know, I, I work globally, so I, I think globally, so I'm concerned about fragmentation of the internet. There's a big push that's kind of an ongoing rumble from countries like China and Russia about wanting to have a local control of the internet, which may mean breaking some fundamental protocols and so forth. And so there's a lot of concerns like that that I have. But overall, it's never been easier to start your own website. It's never been easier to to be uh, an entrepreneur in the internet space. So, By the same token, it's, ne it's never been harder, if you look at it that way, it's never been harder to kind of get your voice heard. It's become such a cacophony. Maybe. I don't know. That's a good question. I suppose in the early days of the internet, you could become internet famous quite quickly, but not, no one was on the internet, so who cares, you know? Um, 
casting our eyes forward, I don't know if you've put much thought into things like blockchain, this idea of the, you know, the decentralized ledger and the potential of that to kind of remake the architecture of the internet, as well as some of, you know, the way things work that we see, you know, whether it's financial transactions, the ability for anybody to very easily support something like Wiki Tribune. Is that something that you're thinking much about? And do you think it's going to be, yeah, I, a, you know, a cha- drive fundamental change? Yeah, I, it's something I'm obsessed with, actually. And I don't know the answer. What I see right now is a lot of, I mean, it's hard to describe it as anything other than a bubble. The level of insanity, I mean, just this, uh, this Kodak thing uh, yesterday. Oh, Kodak coin. Yeah. I mean, okay. It's actually, uh, I don't know much about it, but, it, you know, the idea of, Having some sort of blockchain-y rights management for photos is not completely insane. But the idea that Kodak can just say, oh, yeah, blockchain, and then their stock price doubles is a bit bonkers. And lots of people pitch me ideas, and most of them strike me as particularly bad ideas. (laughs) You know, what I've been trying to say a lot of is if you have a really bad idea, it doesn't make it any better to put it on the blockchain. At the same time, (laughs) it's a hugely interesting technology. It's a really fascinating thing. I think there's some interesting potential use cases, and I do think it's important. But I haven't yet figured out exactly what it means for Wiki Tribune, although I think a lot about that. If anybody wants to contact me with an idea that's not stupid, I'm happy to hear it. (laughs) So... So there you go. Are there any ideas that that were particularly outlandish that come to mind? Well, I mean, one of the things people talk about it with respect, and they propose that Wikipedia should do this, and there's no question, in the current environment, Wikipedia could announce a Wikipedia coin, you know, ridiculous amounts of money, whether it makes any sense or not. But the idea yeah. people propose is like, yeah, there could be a Wikipedia coin, and people could buy the coin, and then they could give it to people to write articles on Wikipedia, and it would be for the writers to get compensated by the readers, and it, wouldn't that be wonderful? And it's like, okay, well, you can already do that with money, and it's already a really bad thing that we fight against all the time, because that's basically the corruption of Wikipedia in favor of corporate PR interests. And so taking something that's already would be a bad idea, sort of eliminating the public spirited nature of Wikipedia and making all the articles be for sale to the highest bidder, well, it doesn't help if you put a bad idea on the blockchain. So that that one doesn't fly for me. But... Maybe there's something in that neighborhood. I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. And how long have you been in London? When did you relocate? It's a bit hard to say exactly because there was no date when I just said, okay, I'm moving to London. I I travel a lot. I met Kate, my wife, and started coming to London more and more often and staying longer and longer. And for a long time, I was just here on business a lot. Then I got a visa and so on. But I'd say on and off, I've been here for seven years, nearly eight. Right. Just being a a little bit London-centric or UK-centric, how do you find living there, working there, the, the, the kind of the environment for what you do and tech more broadly and how it has changed? So I think it's great. I'm a big booster of London. I think it's a fantastic city. Really love living here. There's a lot of cliches about London, which as it turns out are actually true. So the time zone is very convenient. You know, it's eight hours from San Francisco and eight hours from Hong Kong. So it's hard to talk to Piero Midyar because he lives in Hawaii, but that's about it. You know, <laughs> uh, once you get this, the Pacific Ocean is really big and empty. Yeah. And, you know, it's just it's a very cosmopolitan, very international city. 
Obviously, your typical out-of-touch urban elite living in London, I'm very concerned about Brexit. I think it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. And I am seeing a lot of concern in the tech industry. We're already seeing problems recruiting developers. If you're a young Polish developer and London was your place of choice, hey, you you might say, actually, I'm a young developer. I'm going to put down roots somewhere. I'm going to have a family. And you know what? Berlin's pretty cool, too, as is Barcelona and Paris and Portugal. You know, all the places that compete with London suddenly have a little bit of an advantage because you might not know how long you can stay. Do I, you know, if I move to London now, am I going to get kicked out in a few years? I have concerns about whether London can maintain leadership in the tech scene of Europe post-Brexit. Have you ever been based in Silicon Valley or have you not steered, really. I steered had an, clear? Yeah, I had an apartment out there for about a year, but I never, never really lived there. Any reason why? Well, I mean, I think part of it was just the timing. At the time, I started to need to travel a lot. So I travel all over the world all the time and give speeches about Wikipedia and Wikia and now Wiki Tribune and so forth. And so I was never able to really be there. Also, I, I find San Francisco is a beautiful city, but I find it quite small. It's a small yeah. town. I don't think San Franciscans really realize that. No, they think it's no. a major city. <laughs> they think it's a major so, cosmopolitan city, and it's a, yeah, yeah. It's a, I, it's my, a kind my of jo- a moneyed village. My joke is always: if you ask San Franciscans to name five world-class cities, they'll say New York, Paris, London, Tokyo, San Francisco, and it's like, well, and one of those is a lot smaller than the others. And that's it. Episode one done. Thank you, as ever, for listening to the end. I know it's a new season, but some things never change, like the perennial request for ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Please stop by, give us a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show. So take a moment. I'd really appreciate it. And of course, as ever, you can find me in the newspaper. We actually wrote an article based on this interview with Jimmy, which came out this weekend. You can find that online at thetimes.co.uk. And of course, me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. I leave you till next week. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.